Welcome to the Central Christian Church Podcast. We pray this message helps you find and follow Jesus. If you would like to connect with us more, please visit us at centralsj.org. Today we're continuing our series, jumping back into our series entitled Led by Fire. We took a bit of a break, but we've been studying this summer the life of Moses and marching through the book of Exodus and learning timeless truths that can help us in a very profound and very practical way in our everyday lives. And today, our title of the message is Grumbling and Grace. Grumbling and Grace. It's very apparent that we live in a society that is seldom satisfied and often unhappy, which is an interesting phenomenon because on one hand, we live in the most indulgent society in the history of humanity. Our garbage disposals eat better than 30% of the world's population. And yet we're discontent, yet, yet we're not satisfied. And so this has baffled sociologists for a number of years. Some sociologists reason that it's due to our affluence, thus being the richest society in the history of humanity. Other sociologists attribute it to the shrinking size of the American family. Uh, my grandma grew up in a home with eight brothers and sisters. Uh, Tiffany's grandma, eight brothers and sisters. Uh, her grandpa had 10 brothers and sisters. Uh, and so, you know, you got a, a family of 12. That's, that's a lot of folks to feed. That's a, that's a big family. Uh, versus today, the average size of the American household is 2.5. And so uh, if you're wondering who the 0. 0.5 is, it's probably your brother or sister. Uh, you would be a whole, whole person. But, but you attribute that to, you think about that practically, sociologists reason that, hey, if you got 12 people in a household, here's how that practically plays out. Uh, someone puts a meal in front of you and you're like, I don't like this. I, tuna salad again. I'm not a fan. You have a brother or sister like, great, I'll eat it. And you go to bed hungry. Versus today, 2.5 in a family. Johnny doesn't like what's in front of him. Johnny, could I get you a PB&J? Johnny, would you like a ham sandwich? Johnny, how about 5,000 flavors of cereal that you get to choose from? What would you like, Johnny? How can I help you? And sociologists reason that that plays out through life. We've, we've trained a culture that has this mindset that if life isn't going the way you want, don't worry, someone will come rescue you. And that plays out in the workplace. So whenever your boss makes a decision without consulting you, we begin to complain. Whenever the office furniture isn't the color you like, we get disgruntled. When life doesn't go the way we think it should, we assume someone might sweep in and rescue us. And when they don't, we complain. Another sociologist reasons that it's due to social media. The average American consumes two hours and 27 minutes of curated content every day. And sociologists are saying, hey, that's, that's probably not the best thing for you because inevitably it leads us to, to view their curated content and, 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 and reflect on our behind the scene life, which never measures up, right? And so therefore we feel inferior, we, we feel insecure, we begin to compare, and then we begin to complain. Well, all those are some reasons that sociologists are saying complaining is taking place in our culture, but today we're going to look at a few other examples of perhaps it's deeper than that as we look at Exodus chapter 16 and 17. This is very instructive for us to understand God's view on complaining, God's view on grumbling, but this text is also very instructive for us to understand God's grace in the midst of our brokenness. This is a very amazing passage. So we're going to look at this, Exodus chapter 16 and part of Exodus chapter 17 from two different vantage points. 
The first, we're going to look at the same text. We're not going to go verse by verse and teach through it. We're going to look at, at both of them from two different angles. The first vantage point is going to be grumbling. The second vantage point that we're going to look at the same text is through the lens of grace. When we come to Exodus chapter 16, we see that word grumble, grumbled, grumbling, repeated eight different times. And so here's a good question. How can a people, if you've been with us through the Exodus, you, you, you know this, uh, how can a people that has seen God perform 10 miracles to set them free, how, how can a people who has been enslaved for over 400 years now miraculously set free, how can a people see, see God part an ocean and like consume the world's most powerful army in the world at that time? How, how can a people that are led with a pillar of, of cloud by day to give them some shade and led by fire at night, how can a people like that complain and grumble? And this is very relevant for us and very instructive. And so we're going to jump in by, by first jumping to the New Testament. And the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 gives us some commentary on what we're about to read in Exodus chapter 16. So if you would, I invite you to, to stretch out. Why don't you stand to your feet with me as we honor God's word. We believe uh, at Central that, that God speaks to us through his word, that his, his word is not only inspiring, but is inspired by, by God himself. And his word is God's word to us. And so in honor of that, let's stand as we read. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 1 says this. I don't want you to forget, dear brothers and sisters, about our ancestors in the wilderness, talking about the Exodus. All of them were guided by a cloud that moved ahead of them, and, and all of them walked through the sea on dry ground. In the cloud and in the sea, and all of them were baptized as followers of Moses. All of them ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual water. For they drank from the spiritual rock that traveled with them, and that rock was Christ. Yet they were not pleased. God was not pleased with most of them, and their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Verse 6, these things happened as warnings to us. And so when we come to Exodus chapter 16, when we come to Exodus chapter 17, we just need to come with it with this lens of God is trying to teach us something. God's trying to instruct us on some things, especially for those of us that may be more given to grumbling. Verse 9, nor should we put Christ to the test as some of them did and died by snake bites. And don't grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the death angel. These things happened to them as examples to us and were written down to warn us who live at the end of the age. Why don't you turn to someone next to you and say, I'm glad I'm sitting next to you. I'm not complaining about that. I'm glad I'm sitting next to you. And then you can have a seat. Well, one of the great traps of your enemy and, and my enemy, the devil, is to get God's people to try to get you sideways, bent out of shape and complaining about life. Let's look at it in Exodus chapter 16, beginning in, in verse 1. The whole Israelite community set out from Elam. If you're with us a couple of weeks ago, you might remember that Elam was an oasis. Elam was a, 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 a spring. It was a, a place of refreshing. There was 12 springs there and, and 72 palm trees. And so they're leaving that place of refreshing. They came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai. On the 15th day, the second month, 
after they came out of Egypt. So this is probably about 30 days since God parted the Red Sea. Like God has miraculously set them free just like a month out from that, 30 days. In the desert, the whole community, not just a couple people, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said, if only we had died by the hand of the Lord in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and we ate all the food we wanted. I mean, never mind they were slaves. Never mind they were treated as inhumane objects of Pharaoh's labor force. But you brought us out to the desert to starve the entire assembly to death. Here's a good question. What's the cause of this people's grumbling? At the root of it, why would a group like this who've experienced all God has done for them, why would they complain? Why Why would they grumble? It certainly wasn't their affluence. It certainly wasn't the shrinking size of the Israelite community. It wasn't social media. It wasn't a lot of things that sociologists point to in our day. So I want to give you four causes for complaining in this, this chapter, these two chapters, Exodus 16 and 17. Four causes for complaining. If you're taking notes, this is where they begin. Now, grumbling occurs when we get close to the wrong people. Grumbling occurs when we get close to the wrong people. If you and I hang out with people who are chronically unhappy, who, who are, are always viewing life from a glass half full. They, 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 they find, no matter how good it is, like, like you give them a donut, they just talk about how there's a hole in the donut, something's missing, <laughs> right? You show them a beautiful landscape and they just point out all the, the, the cow patties in the pasture. Like it's, it, there's always something wrong. And, and if you and I hang around people like that, we'll begin to take the same attitude. This is interesting in Exodus chapter Uh, throughout Exodus, there's there's a group of people that goes with the Israelites, God's people after Egypt. And so so the plagues have taken place. Uh, They they realize, hey, God is like with the Israelites. Like the God of the Hebrews is the one true God. These people in Egypt recognize not only is, is the Israelite God, the one true God, but they also realize that Egypt is in ruins. Like their land is literally devastated. So they're like, hey, we're gonna tag along with those people. Like wherever you go, I don't know where you're going, but we're going to follow along. And that's what they do. Exodus 12, 37 says that night, uh, the people of Israel left Ramses and started off to Sukkoth. There was about 600,000 men plus women and children. So most scholars say about 2 million people in the Israelite community. Not only that, but there's another group plus a rabble of non-Israelites went with them along with great flocks and herds of livestock. Now let's jump to to Numbers chapter 11, talking about this same incident. The rabble with them began to crave other food. And so this this non-Israelite group of people say, hey, hey, here's what's missing. I mean, that's great. God set you free. But but where's the food at? It it goes on to say this. The riffraff among the people had a craving. So soon the people of of Israel were, were whining. The riffraff start complaining. It bleeds into the whole community. Now the whole community starts whining. Why can't we have meat? We ate fish in Egypt and we got it for free. Yeah, of course you did. You're a slave. But it starts with the riffraff. It starts with the rabble. It starts with this group of people that are are not God's people. They're not people of faith. They're discontent and they start complaining. And then it leads to the whole Israelite community complaining. I'm just suggesting to you, that's true for you and I as well. We hang around people that are always viewing things from a negative perspective. They're always complaining about this. Nothing's ever up to par. 
And you will take that same posture. Before long, your words will begin to mimic theirs. We have to be very careful. Second, complaining or grumbling occurs when we forget what God has done. When we forget what God has done. In, in Psalms, David is giving commentary to what takes place in Exodus. In Psalm 106, verse 9, it says this, He rebuked the Red Sea, and it dried up. He led them through the depths as though through a desert. He saved them from the hand of the foe, from the hand of the enemy. He redeemed them. The waters covered their adversaries. Not one of them survived. Then they believed the promises and sang his song. Check that out. God sets them free, and they're like, yeah, God, you're the true God. I knew it. I I believe in you. You remember just a chapter before in Exodus chapter 15, the first song ever recorded in the Bible. Chris talked about that a couple weeks ago, and they're they're singing the song of Moses, and they're excited. God, you're a rescuer. God, we believe you. And then verse 13, but they soon forgot. They forgot what God has done. And I would suggest whenever a person forgets what God has done in the past, it'll lead to complaining in the present. They soon forgot what he had done and did not wait for his counsel. So they forgot what God had done. They don't don't seek him anymore. Verse 14, in the desert, they gave in to their cravings. In a wasteland, they put God to the test. God, you're not providing food the way we think you should. They forgot. They forgot what God had done. This is instructive for us. I want to encourage you this week, every day, as you have time with the Lord, as you you talk to God, just give thanks. Just reflect on how good he's been. Reflect on on how he's rescued you. Do you remember where you were in that that space when he found you? Do you remember what he rescued you from? Do you remember not only what he rescued you from in your past, do you realize what he's rescued you from in your future? And just give thanks to God. When we forget all the Lord has done in our past, it leads us to complaining in the present. I've been trying to apply this in my own life and studying for this message and talking to you guys. So this, this week, since Monday, before my feet hit the floor, I've been trying to just thank God for 10 things. Before I reach for my cell phone, before I do anything else, just thank God for, for 10 things. I encourage you this week, it's a small step, small application, but it'll make a tremendous difference in your life. Thank God for your family. Thank God for the place where you live. Thank God for the Bay Area. I mean, are you kidding me? We feel like it's, it's hot and humid when it's like 70 degrees and humid. Like it's, this is a great place to live. It's awesome. Thank God for your job. Thank God for providing. Thank God for your church. You might even go as far as thanking God for your pastor. I'm just saying, just a, just a suggestion. But name them. Get very specific. What are you thankful for? That's what the psalmist does. Psalm 103, verse 102, he says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits. If you find yourself in a space where you're like, I don't even know what to thank God for. Like, I'm, I mean, I'm grateful, but what specific things could I thank God for? I invite you to turn to Psalm 103 because David begins to list them out. He gets very specific. He says, hey, soul, you're down and out. Hey, you got to pick yourself up, man. Like, like soul, get it together. We're going we're gonna to bless the Lord. He says, talking to himself, bless the Lord, oh, my soul. Forget not all of his benefits. Who, who heals all your diseases. Who forgives your sin. Who rescues you up from the depth. Like, do you remember what the Lord's done? And if you have forgotten, just go to Psalm 103. and Just begin to personalize it and talk to God about all he's done. Forget not all of his benefits. 
Third observation is that grumbling occurs when we view things from a self-centered perspective. A self-centered perspective. A part of our fallen nature, one thing that everyone in this room, everyone that will be watching online or listening to the podcast later, like one thing all of us have in common as a human race is that at our core, we're a very selfish people. It's part of our fallen nature. And so our first response is, how does that make me feel? How does that affect me? How, how do, what do we think? What do we see? What do, what, what, I think it should happen this way. I think they deserve that. And we evaluate situations based on our limited perspective, based on our limited understanding and our finite human intuition. Here's what takes place in Exodus chapter 16, verse 3. They say, hey, they're complaining. They say, if only God had killed us in Egypt, they, they moaned. There we sat around pots filled with meat, we ate all the bread we wanted, and they're reflecting on their past. And oftentimes, whenever there's problems in our present, we reflect back on our past like it was glamorous. And I think this is instructive for us, especially for those of us who have done some things in our life that we're not super proud of. How it was hanging with the boys, how that night life was. Never mind, we didn't feel like we had purpose. Never mind, we felt like life was aimless. Never mind, we felt empty and hollow inside. But we reflect back on those seasons as if they're awesome, and we miss what God desires to do in, in the present. So we have to be careful that we're not viewing current situations from a self-centered, limited perspective with very selective memory like they do here in Exodus chapter 16. And any time that we feel like we're in that spot, it's just a reminder for us just to ask God, God, give us, give us your ears. We want to hear from you. God, help us to see the situation with, with your eyes, from your spiritual vantage point. God, help me to see my situation the way you see it. God, give me, give me the mind of Christ to process this in a way that it would be pleasing to you and not from my selfish vantage point. Because here's why, what I see, here's the way I feel. But God, I want to I hear what you have to say on it. Fourth, grumbling occurs when we allow ourselves to develop a rebellious spirit. When we allow ourselves to rebe develop a rebellious spirit rebellious spirit. Ultimately, all grumbling is against God. And we don't often think of it from that perspective. I know I don't often think of it from that perspective, but it's true. And here's why. It's true for you. It's true for me. I came into this world with nothing. And whenever you hear that Tim is no more, I'll leave this world with absolutely nothing. Therefore, everything that I currently have, everything that I currently experience is a gift it's a gift from God. The Bible says that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. God established all authorities. And so, so Romans says there's no authority except that which God has established. And that's why in Exodus chapter 16, verse 8, Moses would say this. He says, says your grumbling is not against us. You're grumbling against the Lord. Moses is like, hey, check this out, people. Like, I was minding my business on a mountain. I'm like looking after some sheep. God showed up in a burning bush. This was his idea. He told me to go set you people free. That's what I did. I didn't really even want to do it. But this was his idea. And so here we are in the wilderness and you're mad at me, but hey, you're not grumbling against me. You're grumbling against the God who sent me. You're grumbling against, this is his plan. It's not mine. It's good for us to remember that, that whenever you're complaining, you're not complaining against your boss. You complain against the God who positioned you there. You're not complaining against your spouse. You complain against the God who orchestrated your steps to marry that man or woman. It's not your kids. It's not your house. You're grumbling against God. Psalm uh, 37, verse 23 says this. The Lord directs 
the steps of the godly. Now, that's either true or it's not. The Lord directs the steps of the godly. And that doesn't mean like, hey, we're perfect people because we are all imperfect people in progress. But all that means is that we've had an encounter with Jesus. And when we put our faith in Jesus, he covers us in the righteousness of God. And so if you've, you've put your faith in Jesus, you're, you're a follower of Christ, you consider yourself a Christian, then this is true for you. The Lord is directing your steps. And that's an amazing promise, right? He delights in every detail of your life. Like there's not a detail of your life that hasn't been sifted through his hands. And so when you and I complain, we're saying, God, I know you direct my steps. God, I know you delight in the details of my life, but I don't like the way you're directing my steps. And I thank you for delighting my details of my life, but you stink at the details of my life right now. Right? And so all complaining is really against the Lord. And that's what God's making clear to the group of Israelites in Exodus This is one of the great advantages of being a follower of Christ. But we have to accept this when when it it works in our favor and also when it doesn't. Exodus 17 verse 1 says they camped at Rephidim, but there was no water there for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. Moses replied, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? The idea of testing here is not like a, a pop quiz. It's like a, a miner who's mining for gold, uh, the guy who finds gold or finds silver, and they, they take it, they, they test the minerals, they test the object to see if it's true, to see if it's genuine, to see if it's, it's real. And that's the idea of testing here, the idea of testing here. And so he says, why are you quarrel with me? Why are, you, why are you putting the Lord to the test? It's like the group of people when they're complaining is saying, God, are you really God or not? Because the way you're behaving isn't like God I want to serve. They're putting him to the test. It's a rebellious spirit. It's a rebellious attitude. Here's what, what Moses said. Why, why, do you, why do you put the Lord to the test? It's the ultimate demonstration of rebellion. Exodus 17, verse 7. And then he, he Moses, that is, called the place Massa and Meribah. Massa, if you look at your footnotes in your Bible, it'll probably say testing. If you look at the word Meribah in your Bible, there's probably a footnote that says quarreling. But if you were to do a deeper word study on that, um, the Dictionary of Biblical Languages would say that that word Meribah could also mean legal dispute. And so it's like this group of Israelites in dispute in a court case against God, saying, God, I don't, I don't know if you're the real deal. Because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested, there's the word again, the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? How are they testing the Lord? They're saying, saying God, you're not behaving like the God I, I, I want you to be. God, we deserve this. God, you should provide that. And God, if you don't provide that, then I'm not even sure you're with us. I'm not even sure you're among us. More commentary from Psalm, Psalm 106, 32. By the waters of Meribah, they angered the Lord, and trouble came to Moses because of them, for they rebelled against the Spirit of God. When we're complaining, when we're saying in one breath, God, you direct our steps and you delight in the details of our life, but God, I don't like how you're directing my steps. God, I don't like what you're doing. In those moments, it is though we, fallen people, have put the righteous judge on trial and we're gonna render a verdict on how you're doing or not doing. That's why this is a very serious thing to God. That's why Paul would say in, in, in Philippians, do everything, everything without complaining, are arguing because God is the one 
directing our steps. They rebelled against God by grumbling, complaining. But even in the midst of that, even in the midst of their brokenness, the beautiful reality of God is that God is so gracious. God is, is still so kind. God is long-suffering. Here's the amazing thing about God. Here's what makes God so far from us. When, when, when people were to treat us like they were treating God in that moment, how would you and I respond? It's like God responds the opposite of that. In the midst of their questioning, in the midst of the rebellion, I mean, there does come a point you read in Exodus where God's like, hey, enough's enough, and he, he deals with it in a very drastic way. But even now, he's gracious in verse chapter 16 and 17. And so I want to take some time with this because a lot of people have this perspective of God, like whenever you make a mistake, like God's going to swoop in and just waiting to beat you up. And I just want you to know that's not true. That's not the God of the Bible. The number one attribute of God is his loving kindness. The Hebrew word is hesed. It's his greatest. He does the greatest amount of good for the greatest amount of people for the greatest amount of time. God is incurably good. And so the second vantage point, we looked at it from the vantage point of grumbling. Now let's look at the same text from the vantage point of grace. The vantage point of, of grace. We're going to see how God displays his grace in three ways. And there's some theological ramifications of what we're about to read that are, that are exquisite. One thing I love about the Bible, that as you and I, we study the Bible, as you and I uh, are students of the Bible, here's what you need to know. You can never mine all the treasure out of God's word in your lifetime. Every time we read the Bible, every time I read the Bible, I feel like, man, that's a new insight for me. And I've been studying the Bible for a number of years. And I'm just saying that's one of the beautiful realities of God's word. It's not like any other book that you'll ever read. It is alive. It is active. And therefore, God reveals things to you that he would not, uh, not all at once. There's, there's layers to it. And we're going to see that here. So here, here's the first thing. Um, the first reality of grace from that vantage point of grace is that God's grace gave them bread. God's grace gave them bread. Remember, they're complaining. They're saying, hey, we, we don't have enough food. Like, hey, we're, we're going to die. Like, God, you got to help us. All the while, you just need to know that wasn't true either. Exodus chapter 12, again, back to this. At the end of Exodus chapter 12, it says this. Whenever they left Egypt, they had, uh, they had great flocks and herds of livestock. So in other words, they have a whole lot of livestock. They have a lot of, a lot of food that they could eat. It's just not the type of food that they wanted. And therefore they, they complain. Then Exodus chapter 16, verse 4, then the Lord said to Moses, behold. That word behold is like, check it out. Like, hey, hey, this is going to be amazing. Like, hey, behold, I'm about to do something that's never been done before. Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them. There's the same word again. That I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. Again, not a pop quiz. It's not a pop test. It's a, it's a testing to see if it's genuine, if it's true, if their, 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 their faith is pure gold or like, like fool's gold. And he's testing them on their faith and obedience because really those two always go hand in hand, right? Jesus said, said what? If you love me, you, you obey me. Like you're going you're gonna to do what I ask. And and that's the Lord, he, he's testing them. And he's testing them not so he can figure out where their faith is. Here's the maybe good news, maybe challenging. Like God knows where your faith's at. But sometimes he'll allow a testing into your life, a test in your life to let you see where your faith's at. Sometimes he'll allow a test into my life so I know like, hey, here's where I stand on this. 
like I say this, but man, when pressure comes, here's how I actually respond. And so, so a couple reasons why God allows testing. One, so you'll know where your faith's at. The second reason I would suggest to you based on the book of Job is that your life is the stage of which redemption is played out. Like, like you're on the stage of life living this out and you just need to know like there are spiritual beings. There are angels, there are demons, and they're watching how you respond. They do interfere in this redemptive story, but, but by, by your faith being played out in this stage of life, God is proving to them not only his power, not only his plan, but, but your love for him, even in the midst of extreme suffering and trials. It's a test to see how these Israelite people will do. And why would God let them go hungry? Why would God let them experience need? And maybe more personally, why would God let you experience need? Why would God let, let me experience need in my own life? Well, Deuteronomy 8.3 gives some commentary to this. He says, he humbled you by letting you go hungry and then feeding you with manna, a food previously unknown to your ancestors. Here's why he did it. He did it to teach you that people do not live on bread alone, but rather we live on every word that comes from the mouth of God. He was teaching his people through this Exodus narrative, like, hey, just as you need food, physical food for sustenance and strength, it's imperative that you cling to my word, that you feed yourself on my word so that you can remain spiritually strong. And that's why we talk about this discipline and habit of like daily Bible reading. It's not a religious like law that you have to do, but it is the only pathway for you to be spiritually strong if that's something you aspire to. It's not a, a, a mandatory like, you know, if you don't do this, then like this is going to happen. No, it's like if you want to be spiritually strong, you got to feed yourself. you got to nourish yourself on God's, God's word. Um, it's not a rule to keep. It's a pathway to strength. Uh, we have this uh, QR code. If you're not familiar with the YouVersion Bible app, you can take out your phone. I think at this point everyone's familiar with QR codes. You can just hold up your camera to it, right, and it's going to pop up a link, and it will give you, uh, direct you to where you can download the app for the YouVersion Bible app. And if you don't have the YouVersion Bible app, it has a lot of different translations, a lot of different um, uh, great reading plans on there. While you're getting ready for work in the morning, you can listen to the Bible, feed yourself, Man doesn't live on bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God, you can feed yourself in that way, remain spiritually strong. While you're on your commute, while you're going for a walk, while you're uh, on a treadmill, you can pop in the ear pods. While you're, if your kids drive you crazy, you can go sit on the toilet for a while and just get a refresher, you know, hey. <laughs> do what you got to do. So, so, so that's a reality of what, what's taking place here. He tests them to show them like, hey, you don't live on bread alone. It's not just physical food that you need, but you need... You need, you need spiritual food, and, and he did that to highlight that. But then there's, there's layers, right, to these scriptures. And so we jump to the New Testament. In John chapter 6, Jesus has just performed an amazing miracle. He's fed 5,000 people like there's nothing. He takes like this happy meal and multiplies it over and over again, feeds 5,000 people. Now the crowds are following him. He's trying to get to this quiet place to like recharge and refresh. And he's like, hey, you're not following me because you really want to be my disciple. You're just looking for another meal. In John 6, verse 30, he says, they, they answered, show us a miraculous sign if you want us to believe in you. What can you do? After all, our ancestors ate manna while they journeyed through the wilderness. The scriptures say Moses gave them bread from heaven. Now, you need to know every Old Testament passage points to Christ. Verse 32, Jesus said, I tell you the truth. Moses did not give them bread from heaven. My father did. And now he offers you the true bread from heaven. 
The true bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, give us that bread every day. Jesus replied, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry again. What takes place in the Exodus is this this, this, this string that's connected all the way, this biblical uh, thread that's woven throughout the Bible to remind us whenever Jesus would show up, he'd say, hey, you, just as I provided for you in the wilderness, now in the desert season that some of you may be experiencing, you just need to know bread of life's available. And once you partake of him, he satisfies your hungry soul and you'll never be hungry again. And you can feast every day, feast on his word in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. It's, it's Jesus. It's God's grace that gave them bread in the desert. And it's God's grace that gives us the bread of life to encounter Jesus, to encounter his Word that satisfies and sustains our hungry soul. Second grace point, it's God, God's grace gave them a Sabbath. God's grace gave them a Sabbath. Exodus chapter 16, verse 26 Uh, You may gather food for six days, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath. There will be no food on the ground. Some of the people went out anyway and on the seventh day, but they found no food. The Lord asked Moses, how long will these people refuse to obey my commands and instructions? He's like, I told you guys there's not going to be food on the seventh day. That's why I provide a double portion on the sixth day. But like, what's going on? How long will these people refuse to obey my commands and instructions? Uh, They must realize that the Sabbath is the Lord's gift to you. The Sabbath is the Lord's gift to you. This is why he's given you two-day supply on the sixth day so there will be enough for two days. On the Sabbath day, you must each stay in your place. Don't go out and pick up food on the Sabbath day. Check this out again. What is the Sabbath? The Sabbath is the Lord's gift. It's a gift. It's a gift to you. And just like any gift, you and I can accept that gift or we can stiff-arm that gift. We We can reject that gift, a day of rest, is God's gift to you, a day to recharge. It's, it's, it's God's, in some ways, a command. But This is before the commandments. This isn't, isn't, the Ten Commandments haven't been given. But if you're familiar with the Ten Commandments, like, you know, don't, don't lie, don't steal, don't murder, right? Don't commit adultery. And most of us would say those are probably good things not to do, right? But it seems like the Sabbath is somehow we're exempt from that, a day of rest, And I realize there's weight to that, especially for those of you, those of us who live here in the Bay, because there's a pace of life that's like moving at a fast clip. But but the Sabbath, a day to stop, is God's gift to you. It's grace to you in your life. This is woven into your makeup. It's woven into the creation of our world. Uh, On six days, God created everything that you've ever seen, ever experienced. And on the seventh day, he rested as an example for you and I to follow, a rhythm for us to follow. What does the Sabbath mean? Uh, Eugene Peterson, he writes this, Sabbath means quit, stop, take a break, cool it. The word itself has nothing devout or holy in it. It is a word about time, denoting our non-use of it. What many would usually call wasting time. I like that. Because if you're like me, sometimes a Sabbath or a day of nothing feels like I'm just wasting time. I'm not being very productive. And I think God would say that's, that's the point. It's a day of, of rest. It's a day to refuel. 
uh, Peter Scazzaro, he wrote a book called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, an interesting book, a great book. Uh, but in there, he talks about the Sabbath. And this is where I got this. So in my calendar, if you look at my phone, um, on Friday, Friday's my day off. And so the whole day I have blocked out. And usually there's some things that come up like baseball practice or things like that. But, but all things being equal, it's a day of, of rest. I try not to look at my emails. I try not to respond to phone calls or text messages that are work-related. And it's a Sabbath for me. And so in my calendar, I have these four things. Because some of you are like, what do I do? Like a whole day, what do I do with myself? And maybe your spouse is like, what, is, what are we going to do? Like, what do we do? Well, four things Peter Scagaro suggests. He says, he says, here's what you do on a Sabbath. You stop. You rest, you delight, you contemplate. You stop. Stop looking at emails. Stop working on that project. Stop, stop, stop worrying about how that situation is going to play out at work. You just, you stop. And if you're like me, you're probably thinking right now, you don't know my schedule. Like, I'm so busy. A 24-hour period to stop doing everything? And, and that would be my initial response too. Uh, one Jewish rabbi, he, he would say this. He said, if you feel like you're too busy for a Sabbath, that's the point. It's a reminder to us that our work is never done. Think about this. Before you were ever on this earth, there was more work to be done. After you leave this earth, there will be more work to be done. A Sabbath allows us to put into perspective our work-life balance, realizing that everything doesn't land on you. That project, someone else can push it forward. That career, someone else could do it probably just as well. This was a hard lesson I learned early on in, in ministry for me. Um, it was 2012 when I, I somewhat hit a wall. And it was, I was a young guy just trying to prove myself. And, and Tiffany was working a different job. And it was, it was a fast pace of life. We had our first child at the time. And I was working... 12 to 16 hour days, uh, launching a campus and trying to get this ministry going. And, and, uh, man, I just really burnt out and afterwards went to counseling because I didn't want anything to do with this anymore. And, uh, the counselor looked me in the eyes. He said, Tim, here's your problem. You think you're so important. Here's what you need to know, Tim. You're on track to drop dead of a heart attack or a mental breakdown. And if that takes place on a Sunday, here's what you need to know. That church is going to carry you out on a stretcher, and they're going to have service the next Sunday. Sometimes truth's hard to hear. <laughs> he says, but here's what you need to know. You're the only dad that Cannon has. You're the only husband that Tiffany has. And so you've got to figure out how to rest. And I didn't figure it out overnight, that's for sure. But it launched me on this pathway of figuring out, I've got I to gotta dial this in. Because here's what's true for me. Here's what's true for you. You can take a Sabbath rest and enjoy it, or a Sabbath rest will take you. You'll have a heart attack. You'll break down. You can't keep going at a nonstop pace without paying the consequences for it. And God has, says, hey, it's a gift for you. Accept the gift. And here's what you do. So you stop. Then you rest. Here's what rest means for me. Uh, I, I, so I enjoy golf. So I do things that fill my bucket. So I go play golf in the morning. I take... Tiffalicious out on a date for lunch, my wife, and, and we, we keep, we, we enjoy time together. We rest, maybe take a nap, and then, then I get to go pick up the kids from school because uh, my day off is, is Fridays. But for you, I'm just saying, figure out what fills your tank, what, what, what fills your bucket, how do you recharge, take rest, do things that, 
bring life to your soul. Uh, Psalm 127 verse 2, it says, it's useless for you to work hard every morning until late at night, anxiously, anxiously working for food. Check this out. God gives rest to the one he loves. It's a day for you to say, God, the world's going to keep spinning if I stop working. God, God, even when I'm not working, you're working. God, you got this, and I'm displaying my trust in you by resting, stopping. Third thing he says, delight, and I like that word, delight, and it's an action step. So, so on my days off, I actually enjoy my kids a little more. I see little nuances in their personality that I don't see when I'm running from appointment to appointment or at a faster pace of life. I notice things in God's creation. It's a Sabbath day to the light and all God did in the previous six days and look for where he showed up in my life. One Jewish rabbi said this, the Jews have kept Shabbat. Uh, more than the Jews have kept Shabbat, Shabbat has kept the Jews. In other words, Shabbat's Sabbath. So more than the Jews have kept Shabbat, Shabbat has kept the Jews. In other words, it's kept them sane. And you guys know this, like some of you, not only do you run at a fast pace, but you see people around you running at an unsustainable clip and you see how that's impacting your life and their life. Uh, Stephen Covey, one of my favorite books, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, he, he says this, one of the, the seven habits is sharpen the saw. In other words, if you stop sharpen the saw, you can do a lot more work more effectively than if you just bang, bang, bang with a dull ax. The Sabbath is a way for us to sharpen the saw. We stop, we rest, delight, and then the fourth action step is contemplate. Meditate on God's word. Digest solid biblical teaching. Reflect on all he's done. Final point, final display of God's grace is God's grace gave them water. God's grace gave them manna from heaven. And Jesus says, I am the bread of life. God's grace said, hey, hey, take a day off. This is my gift to you. And ultimately, we find rest, we find Sabbath in Jesus. And then third, God's grace gave them water. Exodus chapter 17, verse 1. At the Lord's command, the whole community left the wilderness of sin and moved from place to place. Eventually, they camped at Rephidim, but there was no water there for the people to drink. So once more, the people complained against Moses, give us water to drink, they demanded. Quiet, Moses replied, why are you complaining against me? Why are you testing the Lord? You got to feel for Moses in this. The Lord said to Moses, walk out in front of the people, take your staff, the one you used to strike the water of the Nile and call some of the elders of Israel to join you. I will stand before you on the rock at Mount Sinai. Watch this, strike the rock and water will come gushing out. Then the people will be able to drink. So Moses struck the rock as he was told and water gushed out as the elders looked on. Remember, this is a community of two million people. Don't think of this as like some little trickle out of a rock. Water's gushing, rivers gushing out of this rock to satisfy a thirsty community. And again, it's this image from the Exodus of will ultimately find fulfillment in Jesus. Moses strikes the rock and he satisfies all of God's people. What happened to Jesus? The rock was struck. Satisfaction, salvation, sustenance provided for everyone that would believe in him. Isaiah 53, 5, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquity. The chastisement that brought us peace was upon him. And because he was struck, 
you can be healed. Goes on to say this, we, we all like sheep have wandered off and gotten lost. We've all done our own thing and gone our own way. And God piled all our sins, everything we'd ever done on him, on him. He takes your sin. This is salvation. He takes your, your guilt, your shame. The reason we can't have a relationship with God apart from Christ is because we're, we're fallen people. We've all sinned, right? We've lied. We've stolen. We cheated. We, we, we've done things that are displeasing to God that cuts us off. But the beautiful thing about the cross is he, he takes all your sin and he piles it on him. And he makes penalty, makes, makes payment. Christ absorbs your penalty and mine so that now we can experience freedom, we can experience salvation. John 4, 14, Jesus said this, but those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes fresh, bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. We talked about this passage last week after kids camp, John 7. On the last and greatest day of the feast, this is the Feast of Tabernacles, it's a, a, a ceremony, a, a celebration in the annual Jewish calendar to remember the Exodus, to remember how God set his people free. They would be camping out in tents, they would not be in their homes, and a big part of this would be a water celebration, remembering how God provided water for their ancestors in the desert. On the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus makes a declaration in a loud voice, if anyone's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the spirit whom those who believed in him would later receive. God's grace to his people in the desert is the same grace he offers to you. He gave them physical bread where there was no bread. Today he offers you spiritual bread Jesus says, that's me. You eat of me and never be hungry again. You can partake of me. People that had no rest, people that only knew slavery. He says, I'm giving you a gift, a Sabbath, rest. Give yourself permission to take a break. God's wired it into your fabric of your being. He gave them water in the desert. And Jesus comes and says, hey, if you drink, partake of me, satisfy your thirsty soul. Matter of fact, you'll be able to splash out on other people, give them grace, show them the transforming power of God. In closing, here's, here's what's interesting. If you, we're not going to be able to finish the whole book of Exodus. We're going to jump into a different series. But, but here's what, if you've read the book of Exodus, you might be saying, why, why did God not allow Moses to go into the promised land? That's a good question. Like, after all Moses did, after all Moses went through, why did not, he could like see the promised land, but he never got to enter it. Why? Because on one hand, he, the first time, the people needed water, God told Moses what? Strike the rock. Water gushed out. Second time, he didn't tell Moses to strike the rock. He said, speak to the rock, and water will gush out. But Moses was so mad, he took the rod, because the people were ticking him off, and he struck the rock again. Water gushed out, but God was mad at him for that. Why? Because it breaks down the image of who Jesus is. Jesus was strunk once to provide you salvation. After that, you just talk to him. Provides living water. So in Romans chapter 10, verse 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. 
If you want to experience the living water today, you got to call. He's already been struck. Satisfaction has been provided. It requires you and I to put our faith, our trust in him, partake of that living water. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your radical grace. We thank you, God, for your rescuing power. And God, today, as we just digest your word, God, I pray that you would help me, help us, God, as your people, to be a people free of grumbling and complaining. God, to to be careful who we surround ourselves with and what we allow ourselves to, to be influenced by, to be careful that we never forget how good you've been, God. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to guard against just selfish attitudes and and a heart that's prone to rebellion. God, would you set a guard over our mouth, I pray, to speak good things, uplifting things over each other and situations that we encounter in life. And God, we're just so overwhelmed by your grace. Thank you for Jesus, the one who satisfies our hungry and thirsty soul. God, you're so good. As you continue in a posture of prayer, maybe you're in this place and you've not yet put your faith in Jesus. Here's what you need to know. God's gift to you, a grace gift to you, is salvation. Another day of of, of being able to be free from not only bondage and sin, but a day to have purpose, a day to be fulfilled with with the life-giving God who created the universe and desires relationship with you. If you want a relationship with him, you want to experience your sins being forgiven, the way that takes place is one, putting your faith in him, believing that what Jesus did on the cross for you, that it really did ratify your account. It it really did erase all your sin. And so that now you can have confidence before God that because of what Jesus did, you, you can be justified. You can be forgiven. But it didn't just end on the cross, but if you believe that, that God rose again, then he's alive that he desires to take up residence in you and give new life to you, then our only proper response if we believe those things is to say, God, you've given your life to me. God, today I'm giving my life to you. And like we read in that passage in Romans, you got to talk to him. Everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. If you're ready to cross that line of faith today and, and talk to him about that, then it'd be my joy to help you take that step. So I encourage you to say a prayer to God like this. Say, God, I realize I've sinned. I realize my sin has separated me from you. But God, I thank you for Jesus who paid the penalty for my sin on the cross. I thank you, God, didn't end on the cross, but Jesus is alive. And God, because you're alive, because you gave your life for me, God, today I give my life to you. If that's your prayer today, I just invite you. As heads are bowed, eyes are closed. I'd love to pray for you before we wrap up. That you just slip up your hand, show God, you mean business, show me who I'm praying for. I'd love to pray for you. Yeah, thanks. Thanks. Yeah, thanks. 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 God, you see every man and woman lifting their hand to you today. And God, you know right where they're at. So God, I pray you'd come in with forgiveness and healing. God, that you would set them free from guilt from their past. That they'd remember, God, that in this moment, it's, it's already been nailed to the cross. And so they carry that burden no more. God, may they walk out of this place with a new sense of freedom, a new sense of joy, and a new sense of confidence in all that you are. God, I pray you fill them fresh with your spirit today. In Jesus' name, amen. That's awesome. Let's give it up for those people that made that spiritual commitment today.